Hello and welcome everybody. It's great to be back with you all. I'm excited to have a guest tonight that we missed last month. We're welcoming back author and researcher, Brother Gary Wayne. We're so grateful to be able to continue the Ask Me Anything series. It's going to be episode 40. We have had 40 episodes of awesome questions from the audience, all of you over there on youtube.com slash Garcia. It's great to be with you all. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we're excited to get through a list of questions that we have, a pre-made list that's actually questions from the live stream uh, from our last show. If you do have a question that you would like to have answered by Brother Gray, please do type your question in the chat. Follow uh, MJM Suit where they put question at the beginning. That way I know this is a question for Gary. And I will throw it on the list. After we get through the pre-made list tonight, we will move into questions from the live stream. And if we do not get to all the questions from the live stream, they will roll over to next month's Ask Me Anything. So without further ado, let's welcome Brother Gary. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, doing very well and uh, so happy to be back with you guys again uh, tonight and uh, looking forward to answering the questions. And yeah, it's just uh, it's a lot of fun to do this show. And uh, I, I just love the quality of the questions that come in. Oh, we really love the quality of the answers as well. So we really appreciate all the research that you've done. If you did not know, Brother Gary is the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that book and where the audience could get their hands on it? Yeah, it's a 6,000-year investigation into the House of Dragon that begins in Genesis 6, and it follows the creation of the giants from the serpent-faced angels, the seraphim watchers, how they usurped the antediluvian governments and imposed a you would call it a universal religion today over the world and led the world into uh, apocalypse, how those organizations and peoples and ideology crossed the flood and how they affected our history, what they're doing today and how they plan about bringing about the end time. So it's a 6,000 year investigation into the House of Dragon, as I like to call it. And it's available on my website, uh, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy.com. That's www.genesis6, the number 6 Conspiracy.com. And on the website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So you'll get a good feel for the book from there. And no worries, that's just a drop in the bucket as to how much information is actually in the book, even though I put a lot of information on the website. That's the best place to get a hold of me if you want to ask me for a document or ask me a question. Uh, there's a contact, the author on there. You can also get a hold of me on my timeline uh, on Facebook or message me on Messenger at Facebook. Also on the website, I have a buy, uh, a buy now section. So it opens up on a page so you can get a signed copy from me. And I have a page for the U.S. I have a page for Canada. I have a page for overseas listeners as well. And people who want to uh, get a signed copy, you can get it through buy from the author. If not, you can link over to barnesandnoble.com from there, amazon.com, amazon.ca, and over to the Kindle version. And that will be the same website uh, for the Genesis Conspiracy Part 2 when that comes out. Um, I'm on, well, I've, I finished the, the initial draft. Uh, it's 84 chapters long, so it's not as long as the first book, which I promised, not a whole bunch, but I did keep my word on that. 
and I'm just doing the proofreading right now, and I'm hoping over the next month or so to be done with that and then send that off uh, to wherever it's going to be published. But I just want to get it all in place before uh, we start dealing with the publishers. That's fantastic. We did have a quick question from the audience. Can we pre-buy your new book? Um, I would, I would uh, hold on to that because of I don't have a specific availability date. So I will come out with an announcement on it and I will be out in advance of the publications when I have a format set up to uh, be able to handle the orders and keep track of the order so I don't lose anybody's orders and do it in, in a proper manner. So yes, will be one of those things as soon as I get it off to the publisher, then I need to start looking about how to promote uh, the pre-sale and how to look after that so that everybody gets their copies in as fast as order as possible and they don't lose any orders. Excellent. All right, we're definitely looking forward to that one. And once again, we really do appreciate all the work that you and all of your fellow researchers and authors out there uh, put forth for us, rabbit hole diggers and all of us who are just searching through the caverns of history and really wanting to to see how the big picture fits together. That's really great work that you have done. So yeah. uh, without further... Well, the new book's really going to take people down some rabbit holes, but all, mostly through through the Bible because it just goes so mm -hmm. deep into the Bible. And uh, uh, so a book that is, even though it can be, you know, uh, yeah, I don't want to sort of uh, dismiss any sort of audience out there. This one is uh, written for people who want to go deep into the Bible and be able to provide answers to people in a way that they can get those answers quickly and say, hey, here's what the Bible really says on that. Excellent. Yeah, definitely the uh, most important book to do a deep dive study on, right? And it's definitely one that has had so many books written on it in the past, but there's still so much to learn. It's just a really a great time to be alive where we have all of these these tools that we can use to, to do those deep dives. We have concordances and interlinears and... Uh, you know, a plentitude of manuscripts to be able to compare and contrast and, and really put together that picture. So looking forward to that one. But uh, let's go ahead and jump over into the questions for tonight, unless you had anything else you would like to mention. I guess we, we should catch up a little bit. How was your month last month? Uh, my month was uh, good. I was supposed to do a conference in London, but they had some financial issues and we, you know, they had to withdraw their invitation to me, and, and they did make actually come back to me about a week before to to try and reinvite me, but I was already booked up and couldn't attend. So that gave me some extra time to to finish off my book. So I was, I guess, looking at the silver lining on that as opposed to you know doing the conference in 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 London. Hopefully, uh, they'll uh, invite me again next year, and hopefully, they do better on ticket sales so that. Uh, uh, they can afford to, afford to pay for a flight for me from Vancouver to London. <laughs> yeah, right on. It's uh, unfortunate that you weren't able to go. I think the British Museum is one of the coolest places I've ever visited. Have you had a chance to go over there? I have never been to London, so yes, no. I was quite disappointed. Ah. I was going to do a little bit of uh, tourism while I was there. So <laughs> yeah, I was, I was kind of disappointed on that, but Hey, I had, a, I had a lot of fun uh, 
getting to the end of the book and sort of saying, okay, now we move on to the next level of uh, chapter of getting getting that out and into people's hands. So it was it was worthwhile, I think. Excellent. All right, well, let's move on to the first question for tonight. It comes from Michael Fisher, and he asks, do you, you think that a demon can use an AI robot as a host for a body for themselves? Yeah, it's a very, very good question that Michael answers. And, you know, particularly as we get into more technology and we get more advanced and we hear more about the things that the occult would uh, have, have envisioned as being possible from transferring consciences to all sorts of different things. And it'll be interesting to see sort of how that kind of rolls out. And it has an implication to the abilities of what demons can and can't do. And I guess the the thing I would sort of start off with is that uh, we have a lot of speculation out there in terms of demons uh, working with people in quantum mechanics and quantum computing and artificial intelligence and one of those names and there's a few names that are out there and we don't know whether it's true or accurate or not but one of the names that comes up is metatron metatron is the name that enoch son of cain changed his name to when he became uh godlike or the son of godlike and raised to being an angel in third enoch which is again an interesting read for a book for people who want to read it but make sure you put your scriptural lens on there and weed out what's uh, not really all that appropriate, um, but an interesting read none, none, nonetheless. So um, we have this connection that the demons might have that sort of capability of doing it. And that's sort of cemented for me that there's a capability and a relationship there in Revelation 13, 15, where we get the image of the beast that Antichrist will be an image of the Antichrist and that it will be able to speak. So is that really uh, an AI or is that a demon or is it a combination? Is it something that Antichrist is also operating or are they just doing it at the command of Antichrist? Hard to know. I would say it's probably a, a demon that is operating that AI uh, at that time. And we also get the demons that are coming out of the mouth of the false prophet and the mouth of Antichrist. Um, as they're lining, going out to gather the armies for God. And it may not be actually that physical sort of demon that's coming out of, of Antichrist. And I cover this often in, 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 in the book that's going to be coming out. It, you, could, you, you could translate that as a command uh, of these demons to gather the armies. So um, whether or not that's an actual demon that is working the image for uh, Antichrist or there's a several demons or however that works, I do think the image hints at the capability of demons setting up a dwelling place that they can interact or an oiketarian as I've covered off a lot of times in the past. And that oiketarian is that word habitation in Jude 1.6, uh, that the angels left their habitation. 
the ones uh, who are the fallen angels and then ended, ended up in the pit prison or the abyss prison. And also the second time it shows up in the New Testament and it only shows up twice is that house in heaven in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, as it's talking about um, where the spirit is going to be able to dwell. And of course we have a house in heaven when a room reserved for us, for us as a, as a dwelling place for the people of the new, new covenant in heaven you know, reserved by God through our faith. So uh, by Jesus through our faith. And so Oikaterian sort of goes into play with this because a demon, for example, will possess a human. So you have two hosts that's in the soul and the body, which is the oikaterian in the physical world. And so only God and Jesus can separate the spirit that comes from heaven with the soul. Um, and so you need this oikaterian if you're a, a demon to re-engage in the physical world to do it physically, just as fallen angels would have created their own oikaterian, their own body and soul to put have a, a habitation or a house to dwell uh, their spirit into and interact in the physical world as they did both before the flood and a seemingly for a short time after the flood with the offspring gods. So we have this sort of concept that says that there might be other abilities uh, or oikaterians that could be used, just as we see with legion, they go into animals. And so that's still kind of a living being. Can they actually have an oikaterian or communicate somehow through some sort of other inanimate object? And uh, it's thought that uh, the research that's going on is trying to create that type of oikaterian for the demons. And they may already be in the high tech for all we know, for all the talk that there is about these non-human things that are involved with this very high level of technology. Biblically, we get some more references to that possibility. So there's a passage in Genesis 31, 19 through 35 with uh, uh, Rachel and Laban and with the stolen images that Rachel takes with this, with her as they're fleeing Mesopotamia. And that's important because that word that's image there is obviously these, these idols were very important. Um, not just, you know, these dead sort of idols, there's something more that might be going on there. And what's interesting about that word image there is that that word goes back to, um, Hebrews eight, six, five, five, uh, and it can mean an idol. Um, but it, it, it's related in some passages to uh, an interesting kind of idol. And that word 8655 in Hebrew is teraphim, T-E-R-A-F or P-H-I-M as it shows up in the King James Version Bible. It's not always translated as it's teraphim, but that's the, that's the uh, um, Hebrew word for that word image, and it can also be the Hebrew word for the word idol at times. So in Judges 17, 5, uh, 18, 14, and 17 through 18 and 18, 20, you get that word teraphim, and you get a few other applications where it shows up actually as that word. And in Judges 17, 5, you have a fellow by the name of Micah who made a house for the gods. 
And that is connected to that word teraphim as it shows up in 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 in, in Hebrew. And so you get that oiketarian sort of understanding in this idol that's in the house of the gods or a dwelling place of the gods or demigods as they might be um, maybe perhaps better understood here that they could have a dwelling place within these idols just as those idols were very very important to Laban and, and Rachel in that story. And then it gets more interesting as we we look at a couple of more passages. So you have in Zechariah 10 too, um, and it's a it's uh, a very interesting passage that is related to the end time, and it's talking about these idols. Teraphim is the Hebrew word there. Idol doesn't always go back to teraphim, so it's a specific kind of idol. And so these idols in Zechariah 10 too have spoken vanity, and now we have an inanimate idol of some sort that has the ability to speak vanity. And that is a very eye-opening passage that these teraphim are thought to be talking idols of some sort. So in another example, scripturally, because I like to, you know, when I'm looking at the speculation is, can you back it up with a little bit more scripture as to exactly is this a possibility and should we take it seriously or not so in 2 kings 22 23 24 you also have the word images that goes back to the hebrew word teraphim and it's included in amongst of a list of spirits and wizards and these images as if it were things that could talk like a wizard could or a spirit could talk and communicate, which is a very interesting sort of application. And then in 1 Samuel 19, 13 through about verses 16, you're going to have the word image show up again that is associated with creating this image of David to deceive the Saul's messengers who are looking to, to find David. And uh, the implication is, is that this disguise or this this thing that they're putting in the in the bed might be able to talk back and to you know mislead uh the messengers that this this is either david or not david as to whatever they're trying to do there so um we get a tradition in the bible of speaking idols and we get that in some sort of ai some sort of high-tech technology in revelation 13 15. So when the question is, is do you think a demon can use an AI robot as a host for the body? I think they're trying to do that. And I think they may have already have done some more primitive levels, but they're going to get to a new level where they're going to be able to combine with quantum computing and deal in different universes. And this is going to be probably... My speculation here, a combination of both technology and, you know, from a inanimate perspective, as well as perhaps some biological characteristics to it as they start to merge that and an ability that will also have very advanced AI that's in it as, as well. So. I guess the quick answer is, is I think that's a yes. I think, I think we're still seeing that develop. Some people would say it's already here and possibly I haven't witnessed it, but there are a lot of gremlins on the internet. So who knows? <laughs>
Oh, what a really interesting question and a great answer. Thank you very much for breaking that one down for us. We'll move on to the next question. It also comes from Michael. Is the creator God still creating more angels at this time? Well, I think God can do anything he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. Uh, whether or not he is or not, that's, that's a very interesting question. But I certainly wouldn't leave it out of the realm of possibilities. And... There's a couple of passages that might suggest that these could be included, that, that angel creation could be included throughout our epoch as well. I tend to think not, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the passages that I think might reflect on this. So you have a passage in Psalms 104, verse 3. In Psalms 104, if people haven't really had a hard look at that, that's a very good passage that mas uh, matches up very well with Genesis 1. So it, it's a creation story. It doesn't you quite use the same order uh, as Genesis 1, but it has the same main points in it. And so one of those things, though, that is added in 104, Psalms 104, that's not in Genesis 1, is the creation of angels. And they're created before, in Psalms 104, the foundations of the world, um, before the foundations of the world were laid that would last forever. In other words, you could have a destruction of the earth, but you could never destroy its foundations. And so the angels in that sequence, if you're to look at that as sequential, would be created before the foundations of the earth. And we get another passage in Job that would indicate that angels were created before the physical universe. Uh, because in Job's third, Job 38, uh, verses 4 through 7, you have the sons of God and the morning stars who are singing and dancing for joy at the beginning of creation. So by implication or inference, they would be created before um, the physical world was. So now what's connected to all of that is... Well, before I jump into what's connected, I mean, so the, the thought is, is if they were all created then, is there a need to create any more? But again, God can do anything that he wants to do, and he can create them whenever he wants to create them. So connected into all of this is that you have in Revelation 17, 8, one of the references throughout the Bible that goes to the book of life. But what's interesting about Revelation 17:8 it says is that this is the book of life that was you know created and holds all of the names from before the foundation of the world so from before life was being built onto the foundations of the earth however old you think the earth is the names were written in the book of life from beginning so that god as being alpha omega knew of all whatever angels would be have their name written in the book and all humans that would include even going to the end of the millennium who will have a choice to choose god now we have humans that are being created in our epoch as we go along so then that sort of suggests perhaps that angels could be being rec recreated as well and that's a possibility I think there was a cutoff point, though, because what we see with the creation of humankind and um, 
humans being reproduced throughout the generations is that the creation of the Adamites in Genesis 2 is the resolution in, in my understanding and reckoning of what's going on in prehistory and in, in, in our complete epoch of, of humankind is Adamites are the resolution to the angelic rebellion. And so what the fallen angels who have rebelled did and continue to do is part of the testimony to eventually convict them completely without any doubt um, that no matter what the scenario, they're going to cause destruction. And the only way that things can operate is through an omnipotent God like our God of the Bible who does good. And he's letting this play out. And that humankind will be raised up to be like angels. And what's also interesting is, is you look at even in the millennium at the end of it, you're going to, when Satan is released, you're going to have humans that are rebelling against uh, angels. And again, I think that's also part that that's a part that needs to be played out to sort of underline with humans that um, even though angels knew God intimately, then they rebelled in the thousand years, we're going to know God in, in, intimately, particularly through Jesus as reigning over us, and humans are going to rebel at that point in time. So it's basically saying no matter what the creation is, we're going to have people that are going to rebel just as we had angels rebelled. And it's it's sort of just sort of covering off all of that sort of aspect before we move off in, into eternity. So from that aspect, it would make sense to me that angels, after that cutoff, at whatever point that was, and it could have been at the angelic rebellion or right from the beginning, this is cut off so that those who have rebelled uh, or will rebel throughout the millennia, if that actually happens right up to the, the time of the end time, then everything that happens there is that testimony against them. So if you were to have, you know, angels that are created afterwards, they haven't gone through any of this. And this this has a sequential way of playing out through what uh, God had seen from the beginning. And so for those reasons, I lean against angels still being created. I think um, they had their creation. We're going through the process of humanity's creations and those ones who are going to prevent their names from being erased from the book of life, just as the angels had that first creation and had their opportunity to keep their names in or erase their names from the book of life. Another really great question. Thank you for the answer. The next question comes from Eyes Wide Open. I've heard your thoughts on a second incursion. Pre-2020, no one knew anything about mRNA or Human 2.0. Nimrod became a mighty one, giant or gibberim, which means he was human before he turned. What are your thoughts? Yeah, another very good question, and we did know about GNA manipulation, we know that G DNA can um, be very, very important in the Nephilim um, concept as well as being the offspring and the, you know, a hybrid creation of human DNA and a gel angelic DNA that would be made available through the physical body, the oikotarian that they would take and that those traits through that physical DNA created would be passed on to their spurious offspring. So we have that sort of concept, but the idea that you could go even lower 
you know, would have been theorized, but now we're seeing messages that can manipulate as a possibility at the at the DNA level. And they're talking about bots and other things that can go right to the most minute particles. And if there's anything below particles uh, that are the building blocks of everything in, in the universe. So this demonstrates that the ancients had some significant knowledge. And I say that because we get lots of representations of that DNA look in a lot of the occult you know, ideology where you have two uh, serpents intertwined that you know, look exactly like a you know, strand of DNA, just as you have that in the, you know, the rod of Asclepius. Uh, you have a single serpent motif and you have a double serpent motif motif for the medical agency that's rooted in in um, uh, the god Asclepius, or you have that same motif that's associated to like certain gods of Egypt, uh, Taz, I recall, and, uh, you know, the serpents related to uh, and was the symbol of mystery schools um, in the ancient world. And Anki is a lot of times depicted with that DNA serpentine, dual serpentine imagery as well. So they knew about this and that's part of the knowledge that the gods provided. If they provided that kind of knowledge, did they provide even more knowledge? And was the antediluvian world even greater than what we have today and we're still catching up to that because if they had all of the knowledge of the gods that merged with the seven sacred sciences as i talk about in my book which is the seven liberal arts today and then took that knowledge to a whole new level like to build pyramids that are megaliths and cities like machu picchu around the world stuff that we can't do today what else could they do so the question is 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 this something then that was around shortly after the flood versus before the flood where they likely had that technology because they could create chimeras and all sorts of different things before the flood and then after the flood uh, we also have it comes out of polytheism but in the epic of gilgamesh with gilgamesh being sixth generation um, after the flood he is going to go to the cedar forest which is the mount Hermon cedar forest and with enkidu and they're going to go there to kill king hababa who's a chimera type of creature creature so either he is recreated after the flood by the fallen angels which is possibility in a second incursion or there was some other technology that was going on or he you know he survived the flood uh, i'll leave that for for you know for other people to decide tonight because um, that's not the question that's being asked here but again it goes to that ideology that there's more going on shortly after the flood than we're told in in standard dogma in christianity or in uh in school of secular history and so nimrod he is described as became a mighty one or Gibor, Gibberim. 
And although giver is most often used to describe a giant, it doesn't have to mean a giant. It's used 155 times in, in the Old Testament, but it doesn't always apply to a giant. It can mean strong strength. It can be used for God's strength, uh, angels, as in the word excel, um, in the book of Psalms, and lots of other applications other than just applying to the giants. But clearly something's going on here with Nimrod, son of Cush, not the son of a fallen angel, but he became like a mighty one, and he's the one who founds Babel after the flood, and he's the one that is literally imposing a mystical religion that is the religion housed, created to house the seven sacred sciences and the knowledge that was passed on from the gods in, in the various degrees and to make sure that the mundane humans didn't have it. And he became like one and he imposes this religion and he gets his knowledge to build Babel City and Babel Tower seemingly out of nowhere, which we don't get an explanation for in the Bible. So I'll come back to all of that in a second. And also underline that a lot of people think that the Tower of Babel had similar capabilities that may have been part of the pyramids as being creating a portal into other dimensions, which would then also uh, bring in significant more uh, technology, just as Babalu, which would be the Akkadian word for Babel, Bab is in gateway for the, or, uh, Bab is in gateway, and ILU is the transliteration of El, which is a god or an angel of Hebrew, which would be the gateway of the gods, and that he was either trying to uh, free the fallen angels that were sent to the abyss, both before and after the flood, for creating giants, or uh, he was going to try and storm heaven, just as uh, Antichrist will do in Daniel 8, which is probably at the same time as, well, it is at the same time as in Revelation 12 with the war in heaven and the angels. And so maybe he was going to release the abyss and then storm heaven uh, through that sort of portal. So you get that sort of connection as well. Now, this word began is the Hebrew word uh, chalal, and it means to pollute means to defile, it means to desecrate, and to do so sexually, um, also ritually, and or to violate his covenant or break his word. So whatever he did to become a Geberim, he did in a manner that a specific word was chosen for it, that he would become Nephilim or Raphaim-like. And uh, that would include imposing the mystical religions that would be developing this knowledge. And if so, through rituals and application of that knowledge, and who knows sexually what was going on in those rituals as well, he somehow becomes like a Nephilim or a Raphaim, which I think would be more accurate. So... He comes about this knowledge according to the Gnostics through a fellow by the name of Hermes, who's going to find the knowledge that was written 
uh, and recorded in 36,525 books by Enoch, son of Cain, the founder of mysticism, the founder of uh, the, the one who separates the knowledge that Adam was taught in Eden uh, that goes through Cain to Enoch. He separates that into the seven sacred sciences, which includes the fifth science of masonry uh, or geometry, which is the knowledge that he taught you know, a thousand uh, masons as as the uh, Masonic tradition goes at Babel to build Babel City and Babel Tower. And so Hermes finds the pillar that survives, the pillars of Lamech and or Enoch. There's two versions on that, but likely the pillars of Lamech of the of the uh, Cain lineage and the one pillar that would be floating as opposed to the one that would survive by fire because the apocalypse was by fire and he finds his way over to the great pyramid finds the the knowledge brings it back to nimrod to build babel city and babel tower and to impose the religion of that knowledge over his people and to start his rebellion against god so if there was a knowledge that he was accessing it was likely through that and through whatever help he was getting uh, from from the fallen angels to decipher it and to start to apply it. So, again, I think there's a possibility that the knowledge is what transformed him in a way that we probably still don't understand, but maybe in a way in terms of what the Nazis tried to do very rude, uh, crudely with the new man concept, but to create a new not a new man, but a new Nephilim, because they were very much into the Aryans and that the Aryan people, as the Germanic people are, or the Tuatha de Danan, that that knew of the Ugaritic text. It would have been um, part of this degradation of the prehistoric uh, giant race that came down through the generations and through the intermarriage and weakening of the bloodlines they've, they've lost that greatness that they once had so it's that sort of concept that i think that has been a play since the flood and continues to pop up uh, as in cases of frankenstein horror stories or with the nazis and will probably be a big part of some of the horrors that we're going to see for the end time oh very very interesting information. Thank you very much for that one. Our next question comes from Eyes Wide Open. His access to seven mystery religions would have helped him. How else is one able to turn into a giant? What do you think about this approach? Could Nimrod have changed his genetics and others? I suppose this is most certainly a continuation of the last question. Did you want to touch on this? Yeah. Or move on. Well, no, I think I covered covered all of that off, and I saw that. Uh, so, I, I yeah, I think we covered it all off, and I don't think there's okay. anything else I, I would really add that would say anything more. Excellent. The only thing that I would say in that whole aspect that maybe I didn't talk about is that mystery religion is the in Babel is the uh, source um, word to understand in the end time Babylon, because that goes back to the Hebrew word Babel through Greek. And that's as the source word. And so that mystery religion of the end time is going to be in play with this other concept of creating new Nephilim in the end time, just as Nimrod was an archetypical, uh, archetypical antichrist figure. Yeah. So very interesting. Thank you. For 
all of that information. Our next question comes from MJM. Do the 144,000 perish along with the two witnesses? Else, what is their fate and when does this happen? Yeah, good question for sure. So I really like uh, how the 144,000 really sort of helps give you an understanding for chronology in the end time. And it helps you have a better understanding for how the sequence of resurrections are going to take place and understanding some of the the language that's involved there is is also sort of helpful so 144,000 will first show up in Revelation 7 and just before you see the saints that come out of the great tribulation um, that are martyred in the name of Jesus for the testimony of Jesus throughout the last couple of thousand years, if we're indeed in the end time, like I think we might be, uh, just like those that were martyred in Revelation 6 in the first 2,000 years. So the one, I guess I, I, I wasn't clear on that. The ones in Revelation 7 would come under the great tribulation of the end time um, as the tribulation of the saints and martyred like those that were in Revelation 6 in the first 2,000 years. So that's important sort of imagery there because when we look at the resurrection sequence um, in 1 Corinthians 15.23, it says that everyone has their own resurrection depending on where you sort of fit into those buckets. So every man in his own order. And the order is Christ at the resurrection or at the crucifixion. Uh, and the first fruits thereafter, uh, which is the Greek word uh, epita. And that means thereafter, uh, after, then, um, all words pointing that the first fruits have a sp specific resurrection sometime after Christ's uh, resurrection. And some people speculate some of those would have been raised up as we have spirits of the saints rising up out of the graves right after the crucifixion you have the 24 elders so the question is is how long does that resurrection go for and then after that first fruits resurrection uh, then those who are christ will be raised that is coming so the inference is is the resurrection of the first fruits will happen before jesus comes and so in Revelation 14, 1 to 5, where you see the end of the commission of the 144,000, these are those who have been purchased or redeemed, as it says in the King James Version Bible. Um, and in verse 5, it says, purchased and it says, redeemed as being the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. And so they're seen in heaven, whereas in Revelation 7, they're starting this commission. And I think they're part of the preaching of the gospel that happens in the first three, three and a half years that Jesus talks about. And they are now seen in heaven and they've been purchased. And the implication as being first fruits, which they're described as, they're part of that first fruits resurrection and part of those who were martyred, just as those in Revelation 6 are martyred and just as those are 
uh, in Revelation 7 that the ones in Revelation 6 are told to wait for during that tribulation or the time of affliction that Jesus talks about, which goes back to the Greek word Philippies, which is the same word that they use for tribulation and sort of interchange the words several times throughout the New Testament, which is happening in the first three and a half years. So one would sort of understand that after three and a half years and you have you have the resurrection of the first fruits and they're seen in heaven What's also interesting is as you move on from Revelation 14:5, you get now a summary for the last three and a half years. You also get uh, before the summary, you get the angel who is going to preach the last of the gospel. So you've got 144,000 preaching the gospel to the world. You've got the two witnesses that will be preaching the gospel to the world. And then it's finished with the angel uh, preaching the gospel, which is at the midpoint in the seventh trumpet um, and in Revelation 14 will then provide you the summary of the last three and a half years main events in sequential order. And as you'll start to see in detail as you get into um, Revelation um, <coughs> uh, 15 and on. So I think that the 144,000 do perish and they are Probably, they might even be the firstborn of Israel uh, that is reserved uh, by God, as, as, as we're told in Exodus and Leviticus, that he's going to reserve the firstborn of Israel. Though They may have been reserved um, by God for this, to die the first death in um, the first three and a half years, uh, and probably to awaken lost Israel as well. So, um, But I'm going down a couple more rabbit holes. So these are these are first fruits like the two witnesses who are also killed, I think, for the first time as 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 well and and are resurrected back to to heaven, just as they're described as such in in Revelation 11. So and their commission is for the same period. Excellent. I definitely appreciate all the rabbit holes that you go down. I appreciate all the information that you share there. We'll move on to the next one that comes from Facts, Not Fiction. Did Satan have a hand in causing the watchers to fall, or did they fall entirely on their bad judgment of the woman of Cain? Well, I think that it's a combination of probably both, but Satan is going to have a hand in setting those who might be more easily tempted up for um, falling away from God. So in Ezekiel 28, 15, we're told that the cherubim uh, who walked in Eden, um, and, and this is talking about Satan in, in, in this passage, and there's some references to Tyrus, as, but I won't get, get into that sort of mix. Understand it's talking about two individuals, but in the same manner, one being Satan, one being an Antichrist-type figure. And so in Ezekiel 28.15, you have... Um, Satan being described as perfect from the day that he was created and until um, iniquity was found in him, which is caused by his wisdom that he becomes arrogant and proud. And so he's the first one, I think, that is going to fall. And he is doing things in his widespread trade 
in Ezekiel that I think is he's opening the door up to play on vulnerabilities of some of the angels. And I think he actually leads them to, to rebel. So one of the things that I think that he starts to entice them to do is to take a physical form in the physical world that we talked about earlier so that they can physically interact. Spirits can interact, but not in the same way as if you have your own oikotarian and can eat and drink, just as we see the angels do in the Sodom narrative before they go. In fact, Abraham looks at them and thinks they're men, even though they're angels. And you also have the angel of the Lord there, which I think is the is the pre, uh, pre-Jesus, the word aspect making himself uh, manifested as, as a man as well. Um, and visiting three of them with 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 Abraham, and so when you're part of the physical world, and you have that physical nature about you now with the soul and the body, and in a world that Satan had already been corrupting, you're starting to fall into the influence of that corrupted world. But just as importantly. The ones that he that Satan would have given power over and higher up in his forming rebellious hierarchy or already formed, depending on your perspective of the time of that, he is going to have ones that he is, is are going to be loyal to him and are going to uh, be corrupted. And some of the things that they're going to be corrupted with is is what humans are corrupted with. It's our emotions. It's our desires. It's our inability to control those things of the body. And in this case, I think, you know, he may have led them to Mount Hermon to take the oath, um, but they willingly took the oath according to the book of Enoch, knowing the consequences led by their impassioned uh, feelings that they couldn't control. And they took women of anyone that they chose, suggesting that they took multiple wives and created the giants through sort of that sexual um, passion that they were wanting to partake in. And who knows what other things that they were doing before that. But I think what happened was is uh, Satan um, led, made, it, made a situation for them that they would fall uh, and uh, would take the lead of what Satan did uh, and, and stick to that. Uh, even even to the end. So yeah, I think he enticed them, but I also think it was part of their own self-corruption as well as being physical beings in the physical world that they manifested into. A really interesting question again. So we have about five minutes until break. We'll go ahead and move on to the next one. And if we don't finish up, no big deal. We'll be able to pick it up after the break. This one comes from The Matrix Squared. What is the significance of the Georgia Guidestones being taken out? For example, the death of the New World Order and replacement with 10 trading blocks? Yeah, you know, I'm obviously not in on the inside of this. And uh, 
I'm not, you know, I'm not quite sure what the motivation was to destroy them or who destroyed them, but they have been destroyed. And let's say just for speculation purposes that they were destroyed by the occult organizations, the Rosicrucians in this case, as is speculated, are the ones who who, who put up the edicts for the uh, world order that they want to have coming. So if they destroyed that, then what 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 were they trying to do with that destruction? And I would speculate from that perspective that that was notice already given and that in the occult, they tend to have to or want to, maybe it's part of their narcissism, but they tend to try, they tend to tell people what they're going to do before they do it. And so everything's hidden in plain sight, whether or not people want to recognize it or not. So if you're going to take that warning down, then that would suggest that the period of warning is over. And now they would, in all seriousness and haste, start to begin the march towards global occupation. That would start to bring about the Babel religion, which would bring about the 10 King Seventh Beast Empire and which would eventually in the last three and a half years bring about a reign of antichrist so that would be my speculation so yeah quite similar to what matrix squared is is asking is you know is that uh, uh designed to, to sort of replace this world order that they've been trying to to put together i think uh it is and i think that we've seen an end to and we've hear, heard this kind of language out there the, the end to the age of reason and accountability and laws, that we're going into an age of lawlessness, a.k.a. Putin has violated all of their laws and they're going into, uh, you know, taking whatever they want on without having a rules-based order. I think they're still following the rules. That's just the sort of specious sort of uh, thing that they try and tell us publicly. They know that there's going to need to be wars and rumors of wars to be able to formulate uh, and annex the territories to establish those 10 kings. So uh, I think all of that is in play. Yeah, that's a really interesting question and a really great point. I'd never considered it that way that this could be the end of the warning period. That's, I guess you you kind of see it since uh, what's been going on lately. It feels like everything's just been stepping up in such a, a big manner and everything's just happening so much faster and all the natural disasters, you know, like, like the scripture says, it's like birth pangs that get worse and worse until uh, the delivery, right? So uh, we have about a minute left. Wanted to ask maybe a quick question. Did you catch Elon Musk's uh, Halloween costume? No. What was the costume? <laughs> he, I guess he dressed up like the Devil's Champion. Uh, maybe we'll get your comment on that when we get back from the break. But we'll be right back, wow. everyone. Thank you so much oh. for hanging out. And yeah, we'll pick it up after the break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host for tonight, Justin James Garcia, and I'm joined by author and researcher, Brother Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. 
Really awesome to have you back on to continue our Ask Me Anything series. Before we get back into the questions, just in case everyone or some of the listening audience missed it earlier, where could we get a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? I have to unmute. The easiest way to, uh, uh, I've got two mics or two mutes on my system, so. <laughs> no problem. Um, the easiest way to, to get hold of my book and easy to remember, if you want to get hold of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, go to www.genesis6conspiracy, that's the number 6conspiracy.com, and on that website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters to give you a good flavor for the book, and you can buy a copy directly from me off of that website. You can, um, if you're in Canada, there's a page for Canada. If you're in the U.S., there's a page for the U.S. If you're overseas, there's a page for overseas. And if you wanted to link over and get a digital version, um, you can do that from the buy page as well to link over to Kindle. And if you wanted to uh, link over to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com or amazon.ca, you can do that as well. So that's the easiest way. It is available on most online bookstores. And if you wanted to support your local bookstore, they could order it in. It's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania, so you can get a hold of the book through your local bookstore if you wanted to support them as well. So lots of ways to get a hold of the book. Excellent. Thank you very much. So right before the break, I did bring up that one quick question. Just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah. And I don't know if you were able to look it up during the break, but... I did not. Yeah, Elon Musk, uh, I, I, uh, he had... A $7,500 Halloween costume that was called the Devil's Champion, and it flaunted a, a, a Baphomet, and I think it was like a pentagram or something, or upside-down yeah. cross on his chest. Yeah. Uh, curious, some people wow. have reached well. out to us to tell us that he's supposed to be the fake El Elyon, but I know Elon yeah. is, is an old, I think... Uh, an Edomite name or a hit a Hittite yeah. name, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So um the imagery there is quite stunning. And for people who aren't familiar with Baphomet, that was the um head and thought to be a satyr head, a a goat god head that the Templars worshipped and the Templars at the adept level, so it would have been the Royals uh, at, at that level, just as de Bouillon and de Payon and Anjou were all royals and the only ones that weren't were, well they were, they were just uh, Cistercian uh, priests as, uh, as, as the founders and they were related to all of the royals as well as they ran the complete uh, nobility, including the priest class at that point in time. So um, what's what's really sort of interesting about that is that Baphomet is a goat god in the same order as Azazel, right? When the pentagram and Satan are both associated with uh, the, the pentagram. Um, and then you've got, you know, the cross upside down, I think you said that's another symbol of an antichrist type figure. So I'm not sure whether he's representing in a diabolical well that he's representing the devil, noting, noting that that's the word diabolos and diabolical, which means kind of like evil genius is uh, rooted in that. And he's that champion. 
Also notice that word champion that you said. So Goliath was a champion. Nephilim warriors, Raphaim warriors were called themselves champions. So that would might indicate um, bloodline of either Satan or, or Azazel. Uh, there's lots of connections to Antichrist, to Azazel as the son of perdition. I won't go through that whole uh, conversation, but it's an interesting uh, um, connection in there because um, it goes back in Greek to the Hebrew word to Apollyon. Uh, and also Antichrist receives power from the dragon in Revelation uh, 13, 1 through 5. And so there's lots of things that he might be playing on, but he seems to be not trying to send, you know, a message to, you know, the Christians on that. I think, and, you know, he might be doing it because he's diabolical. He's genius uh, he uh he might be sending a message to people within the occult and also know that note that he has been on record at saying that uh one of his reservations of the development of the technology is the the spirits or the demonic spirits that are active in that technology and we were talking about that a little bit earlier so an interesting connection in there in there as well but in the occult in in polytheism you have a dualistic religion of this perpetual good versus evil so you have good nephilim and bad nephilim you have white magic and black magic you have good witches evil witches it's just that constant that is always that representative of that battle and He's doing things. He's still advancing things for the end time, which is why you always want to be, you know, careful of putting absolute allegiance until you watch more of what the actions are. So we all hope, I think, that he's going to increase free speech. But I still think he is still, you know, kind of on side with that whole globalist uh, end result. He's just doing it from the flip side of the coin, perhaps, as to some of the more obvious people that would be in power today. But they're moving generally in that sort of direction. So he may be just sending them a message. And who knows, he may be sending a message that his backers are more powerful than yours. <laughs> I mean, who knows? But he is definitely one of the smarter people in this world. Doesn't mean he's a good person. Um, I'll have to wait to see more of what he actually does. I am I am happy he's taking up a fight for free speech, but we'll see whether see how that actually plays out. Uh, and he is standing up to some of the more oppressive forces that are in the West today. So I like that as well. But I, as I say, I, I, with, with Elon, uh, although I, I do sort of try and keep an eye what he's doing is, is I, I, I'm undecided on him at this point, to put it the best way I can. Right on. Well, thank you very much for giving us your thoughts on that. I know there were a lot of uh, interest in what you thought about that. So I'll move on back to the live or from the pre-made question list here. And if you are joining in in the YouTube live stream, please do... Uh, put your questions for Brother Gary in the chat, and we will add them to the live question list. It is ongoing right now. We have, let me look, 21 questions for the live question list. So if we do get a chance to knock some of those out, we will. Uh, but if not, we will roll them over to next month's Ask Me Anything. Uh, so we'll get right back over into it. 
The next question comes from AMA Inquirer. Does Matthew 5.18, where Yahushua says, none of the law will pass away, mean that we are still required to follow Old Testament law? Yeah, very good question again. Um, and I've got that many questions backlogged in the uh, chat room. I better pick up my pace a little bit here by the looks of things. So I'll, I'll do my, the best I can. So um, that, that's a question that's been around, you know, since Jesus. And it's it's I'm going to sort of and I'm not a minister, so I want to I want to be careful of this. And I've not um, gone to theology school or anything like that. But there's a spirit of the law that Jesus was reintroducing to the Pharisees uh, when he was here that they had become so legalistic that there wasn't the spirit of the law being applied in, in a good way and in the way that God would want uh, the law to be uh, dispensed. And so he, he didn't uh, throw the law out in the window, but he introduced the spirit of the law. He kind of reinvented or rejuvenized the whole kind of idea. And, you know, Paul talked about fulfilling the spirit of the law and that if the spirit was in you, you would be led to fulfill the law. And uh, so I think that's partly in play as well, even though you're not held accountable to the law because of the sacrifice of Jesus. In Matthew 12, um, Jesus does a few things and says a few things that I think shed some light on the spirit of the law that I was talking about. Um, and in, in Matthew 12, he's being challenged by um, the uh, Pharisees in terms of working or doing things on on the sabbath and you know to, to gather food is to work and so jesus makes a few points about how david ate in the sabbath um, uh, when he was basically starving as you as you dig in deeper to that meaning of the word that that's uh, being used there and that priests who or the rabbis that worked in the temples and in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem temple, they would work on the Sabbath to, to look after the flock on, on, on the Sabbath. And they would, they were always held blameless for working on the Sabbath. So there's a spirit of doing good that um, doesn't, sort of bring about the way of breaking the law on the Jewish people and the Jewish people and the Israelites, the Northern tribes as well, before they split, they were both created as a nation separated from the rest of the nations as priests. So a nation of priests for a specific commission and they were held to a higher standard, but yet Jesus was reschooling them on the spirit of the law. So that, all sort of comes in into play and so when we sort of roll forward to james taking over the church uh in acts um, 15 1 through 30 and the idea is are we going to force the law on the gentiles the 
uh, Paul is preaching to. And James decides as, as being the, one of the leaders and probably the leader of the church at that time, but certainly one of three for sure. And then he makes an exception for the Gentiles because they're being brought in and they're not physically from the lineage of the nation created uh, through Abraham by God to be a nation of priests. And so you have all of these food restrictions uh, that are still imposed on the people of Israel because they haven't accepted their Messiah. Uh, I would also add in there, uh, but they will in the end time. So, you know, the things that the Gentiles couldn't eat or consume would be blood, for an example, or animals that were strangled in rituals uh, or do immoral sex. Those are the things that they were said that they still needed to follow. And then that's when the idea of what Paul talks about is, is even though we're free of the law and we can eat anything that we want, you are, you are led by the spirit to start to, to fulfill the spirit of the law. So I would, I would say let, um, let that spirit guide you as to what you what you think that you ought to be doing or not but always make sure you're trying to fulfill the spirit of the law really well put thank you very much for that answer next question comes from gad the seer within the first half of the tribulation will multiple antichrist candidates arise and be accepted by their respective cultures to be later accused the real antichrist yeah, and I think that question probably is, is will those first half antichrists um, be disavowed as being antichrist by another antichrist who ultimately becomes the antichrist who says he's the true messiah, right? So if I've got that right, I would say, yes, I think that's the case. And in John 2.18, we get... Um, the translation of Antichrist into English only in plural in 2.18, just as you have in the epistles of John, the spirit of the Antichrist is always out there and lurking to bring about Antichrists. And we also get that same concept in Matthew 24 and, and Mark 13.22 uh, with the term false Christ as in plural, that there's going to be false Christs in the end time. And that is uh, pseudo, is the uh, Greek word there for false, and false uh, Christos or Messiah. Um, and we get those in multiple. So I think when we look at that, that's that word pseudo can mean spurious, as in false, and also as in <clears throat> an illegitimate offspring. So just as you have uh, angels creating giants, they were the spurious offspring and they were created in a hybrid spirit. So one might contend then that uh, Antichrist might be uh, of the bloodline and maybe uh, as was being insinuated with Elon that, you know, he is a bloodline descendant of either Azazel, as he might have been portraying there, or Diablos uh, in Satan. So interesting. And we have other religions that are that we know of, and they all have an anticipation of an Antichrist type figure that they would look at as a Messiah figure. So you have like the Jacobites in um 
and, and Gnosticism and Freemasonry that are looking for a Messiah leader through the bloodline uh, of the Stuart dynasty. Uh, you have him known as the Grand Monarch and more of the continental side of that Antichrist figure um, in, in the Gnostics of, of continental Europe. You have Lord Maitreya or the new Buddha as an incarnation of Azazel, um, or the Shiva god, but Azazel, uh, Apollyon, Abaddon would be the destroyer god of the antediluvian world, the one who taught war and weaponry and the arts of war to to the giants to destroy the antediluvian world. Um, you would have Vishnu as well, that would also be the one who incarnated into Buddha to give him additional power. And just as we have... Um, Antichrist receiving power from uh, Satan, both in Revelation 13, 1 through 5, and 2 Thessalonians 2, he receives all the power of that Satan can supply from his bag of tricks. So, yeah, we're going to see, I think, Antichrist from all over the place. I don't know how many, but there's going to be legitimate ones that are going to, one will actually lead to, I think, a counterfeit Armageddon that Antichrist, the true Antichrist, will take credit for and use that to use as his credential as Jesus comes back for Armageddon. So this will be an Armageddon-like war. I think that's that Joel 9 war after the abyss opens, which seems to be the same creatures that are in Joel 1 and 2 versus Joel 3, which goes into Armageddon, and also the Ezekiel 38 to 39 Gog war. And to me, that size of a war would give Antichrist that sort of credibility and the leader of of that war would be Gog, which is a uh, not a word that sort of comes out of uh, out of Bible history. It's a foreign word. Uh, Magog does. And Magog is uh, is part of the uh, offspring of Japheth who are moving into the Asia Minor area. But Gog is not. Gog comes kind of out of nowhere, and it's Gog of Magog, as he's described, and the chief prince of Meshach, uh, also thought to be the Russian uh, connection that, that is going on and part of the Ten Kings. But there will be this Gog who is defined in Hebrew and in, in, in the Greek and the New Testament as an Antichrist-like figure who is going to lead this Armageddon type of war, and I think that will be one of those Antichrist type figures and the one that Antichrist takes credit for defeating, just as Jesus defeats Antichrist at Armageddon. Excellent. Thank you very much for that answer. Next question comes from Matt Mayerend. I'd like to get Gary's opinion on being baptized. Is it true you must be baptized to get into heaven? Well, that gets to be quite legal when you when you you know apply it in that sort of way. I think yeah, I would certainly recommend it, but uh, that's not what gets you into heaven. At least not what we're told sort of biblically, um, from a sort of a pure basic level. So in Ephesians two eight, we're told that you're saved by faith as a gift by God, and by extension, by the word being made flesh to atone for all of our sins. And Ephesians 2.8 goes on to say, you know, it's we're saved by faith, not of works. Uh, 
but we also know that uh, Hebrews 11.6 also talks about faith is a must to be saved. And then we get examples of that faith, uh, people that we expect are saved, even though that's pre-Jesus coming, but they had faith in God. So faith is 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 the the key. And, and I think Christians would have a special uh, reward for having faith in God through Jesus, so having faith in, in, in both. Now, in the book of James, it talks about doing works, that if you have the Spirit in you, you're going to see those things manifested in those works. So works, as in, in Hebrews, is not the must of, of being saved, but faith is. But if you have faith, then as James talks about, you'll manifest some good works. It, it just has to come out that sort of way. So that means you probably want to fulfill you know, the, the law that we had talked about. You'll be more wanting to do that, to do more good works, to do good things. And by extension, you probably want to be baptized to, to mark that as well. So I don't think it's essential, but I think it's an extension of having that faith. Really great points. Next question comes from Karmic Dissuasion. What proof do we have that the Old Testament was written prior to that of the polytheist material of the enemy? Well, we don't have any proof of that. And our what we have that comes down to us is uh, from the old part of the Bible, let's say, you know, um, Genesis. That is handed to, not handed to, but given to uh, Moses, either verbally or written or for him to write down or have the scribes write down at about 1450 to 1400 BC. And so you have a lot of history that is going to be dated to be older than that. Now, that's a polytheist lens of their belief system and their gods, and they'll have a polytheist biases that they see see and interpret that through. So what we get is something passed on to Moses to uh, lead Israel out of one of the beast empires and into the land of the covenant and to make way for the Messiah to save humankind. And that's the history that we're given. Uh, throughout the Bible is that whole Israel experience, but Moses has also provided the book of Genesis that has things that would have happened before the flood and just shortly after the flood. And so we're going to get similar accounts in polytheism, but they're going to be different. Um, so, you know, if people think that uh, Gilgamesh is, you know, in the Epic of Gilgamesh of Atmatishtin or Zayazudra, um, who and Itzabar is another uh, translation of that as well, where you have a survivor of the flood, and that's the copy that um, the Israelites, uh, they would say, stole the Genesis story of the flood from. Okay, I get that. And you have the Epic of Gilgamesh that dates back to 2150 BC, and based on obviously older events with the Atmatishtin, um, and flood story that's built into the epic of Gilgamesh. And so I get that, but I'm not pushed in all of his family, Gilgamesh, 
Enkidu, these are all Nephilim-type creatures or two-thirds God and one-third human. That is a polytheist doctrine, of polytheist survival in terms of how giants would survive the flood through the floodship of giants uh, and how you would have a second incursion after the flood because Gilgamesh is sixth generation son of Lugalbanda and uh, uh, a goddess out of the Sumerian pantheon named Nin or Ninsun, as some people will put a, a suffix on that in some of the transliterations. So definitely he's a second incursion as Enkidu is, or Enkidu, depending on which translation that you're reading. So that's all polytheist history. The Bible doesn't discount that giants were created, that there wasn't a flood. They just tell the human survival of of the Noahites, of the descendants of Seth, of the descendants of Adam. And uh, it's just a different accounting of the same history um, that, you know, has older records because we weren't provided this until later. That doesn't mean there weren't records at one time before the flood, but we don't get that account written down. Um, Although I do leave open the fact that you know, there's you know Noah and some of the descendants of Shem might have started to write down some of that history before, um, but we don't get a lot of that surviving into in, in, into the uh, in, into the Bible. So whether or not that went lost, uh, we don't know. But I leave the open that there could have been some of that writing that uh, you know from a monotheist perspective, but also understand most of the monotheists disappear after about the, you know, Nimrod is third generation at Babel. And after that, there's very few monotheists that are left. And Abraham is sort of reclaimed to re reboot monotheism after that. And so any monotheist records would have been destroyed by the polytheists before that, if there was some of that record. So don't let people intimidate you that they've got some older surviving artifacts. They do. But if you have faith, then you would believe that the Genesis details that we get that come down through the Bible or passed on to Moses for the original Torah. Right on. Thank you very much for that answer. Next question comes from Rolando Vasquez. Concerning the second incursion, am seeing the nakedness of his father consist of fornication with his mother and begets offspring of the seed of Cain. So no second incursion, according to his interpretation. What's your opinion on this? It, it's, it's, it's a very good question, and it's a very, very, very big answer in terms of um, what they're talking about. So the assumption here is, is that Ham would somehow have the DNA of the giants to, to make that happen, as the, as the question is uh, posed, or Ham was a giant, uh, as the Gnostics believe, uh, and was either a stowaway or another name of another giant, because there's several different versions of how giants were stowaways on the flood in the Gnostic sort of version. So, 
it is a very, very uh, interesting uh, question in terms of uh, Ham, did he create giants and somehow that nullifies a second incursion? Well, only if, if that's true about Ham. And typically, um, I think it's a possibility. It's kind of lower on my uh, scale of how giants sort of show up after the flood. And we don't know exactly if Ham had sex with um, Noah's wife. Um, because there's there's a couple of ways you can interpret that. And again, I don't want to spend an hour going through it, but I'll give some some sort of bullet points on this. So when the laws that are being um, discussed in, in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus on these uncoverings that is going on here, it's important to remember that in those descriptions and those examples that we get throughout Scripture, the person whom sexually participated and continues to the uncovering of the spouse, they're typically named. Those are details that would uh, indicate who was being involved here would be uh, implicated as part of the sin being created. So one wants to be careful to infirm, infer whether or not there it was the the father's husband nakedness was was uncovered, um, unless you know the female is also sort of identified or named in the story, and she's not. So what we get is is, and if a man um, shall lie with a woman, uh, for example. Um, so you have a man lying with a woman, her sickness, she'll uncover her nakedness, okay? So that specifically sort of identifies all of the people in, involved. So in Leviticus 20 as well, if a man lie with his daughter-in-law, the same sort of thing. So now that sort of roll that forward in terms of the specificity of the individuals involved, then you're going to have the person identified in the physical sexual crime is uncovered, just as uh, as says in, in Leviticus 18.7, says not to uncover the nakedness of the father or the mother. So the mother's not implicated here at all. So when we roll forward to what I'm talking about here, and I know I'm moving rather quickly, in, in Genesis 9.21, we get identification of Noah who drank the wine, right? He's involved. And he was uncovered in his tent by Ham. And he's involved. But the, and Canaan saw the nakedness of his father. What is not being uncovered here and the nakedness is Noah's wife. So you can interpret that um, just as easily as that was a homosexual situation as opposed to an, incest, an incestual one with uh, uh, sleeping with his, his, uh, with his mother. So you have to be careful on, on those details. So no, I don't think it automatically nullifies that. And I don't automatically secede that Ham is in, or the wives are the cause of the giants. So, what I do know is, is that we get uh, patriarchless nations uh, who have no patriarch in the table of nations like the nine uh, patriarchless Canaanite nations. So what we also know is, is that the Raphaim are aboriginals in the land 
before the people of Babel disperse. So the Canaanites are going to settle in the covenant land and then interbreed with the Raphaim who are already there. And so because their patriarch would be uh, a giant, then they would create hybrids like the Amorites or the Jebusites thereafter. And because of that, they don't have a patriarch that's listed. We have an example of this in the Bible where you have Arba, who is the patriarch, as the book of Joshua talks about, for the Anakim or the Anakites. Um, and Arba is not listed in the table of nations as well because he's Raphaim as Anakim in Deuteronomy 2 goes back to the word giant from Hebrew uh, Rapha, Raphaim being the uh, being the, uh, the the plural on that. And you can make a good case for Rapha also being a patriarch for the Raphaim tribes that show up in Genesis 15 and Genesis 14. So I don't, yeah, what I try and do is I have my biases. I think there's a second incursion. I'm also open though for survival and I'm open on this as well. It's just that I don't find a lot of evidence for that, but because we don't have a smoking gun verse, how they're created after the flood, then I think we want to be a little bit open to how that happens, but everybody's going to have their own favorite position, I think. Yeah, really interesting question and great points. Uh, next question comes from Arby's Reflection. Do you know if Chuck Missler read Genesis 6 Conspiracy? If not, I think he really would have enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't think he did. At least I don't know that he did. Um, and I don't know whether he would have liked it or not. What I do know is, is I have an incredible amount of respect for Chuck Missler his uh, pioneering, his intellect, and, and the books that he wrote. But I have no information that he read my book, but I think likely likely that wasn't the case. All right, moving on to the last question from the pre-made list. This one comes from Enoch Inspired. What do you think of Satan being Gadriel in the book of First Enoch and him being called out as a cherubim angel of the Garden of Eden even if he is called Lucifer in this age, not an archangel. Yeah, a lot, lot put in that question. It's, it's a good question. So Gadrael, for uh, people not familiar with the book of Enoch, is said to be uh, the angel that is in um, Eden. And he's, he's uh, you know, one of the more important Satans or Satans in, in, in the book of Enoch. Gadrael actually has a Hebrew uh basis to it. So one of the reasons we know that, you know, a lot of the terms go back to Hebrew and Enoch, this is a classic one, just like Ophanim is a Hebrew word as well um, for one of the watchers. Gadrael means wall of God uh, for the most part. You could, or you could translate that as God's wall as well. I think it's probably one of the titles of Satan. Um, and a possible name that would go along with that title. Satan has a number of, of roles, I think, and a number of positions as, you know, this greatest being below God, the Word, and the Spirit, uh, and definitely a top. And the leader of the, the angels, as we talked about earlier in the show, and that he's the leader of the angels in, in Revelation 12, who Michael is going to f fight as the leader of, uh, of the angels um, in that war. Uh, that's coming in the end times. So, 
But I wouldn't say that he's not an archangel because, and I'm going to come back around that, he has many titles. So just as Satan is classified in Revelation 12 as the dragon and the serpent, um, he would have been, had some seraphim characteristics to him. So in Ezekiel 28, you have a cherubim that is described as Satan, but he walks amongst the fiery stones where cherubim don't do that, but seraphim do. So this is how unique Satan is. He has a combination of angelic watchers at the top. And so seraphim described in Isaiah 6, they work as ministers before the throne. In fact, one of them grabs one of the stones and he puts it to Isaiah's lips to take away his sin in preparation for the vision and being around the throne of God in that vision. So seraphim, uh, Satan being a dragon, is a six-wing serpent, a six-wing dragon, a heavenly dragon, as Revelation 12 describes him. He was likely the high priest, and why Jesus will take over for that as the leader of the Melchizedek order, um, replacing the void of the loss of the head priest when, when uh, Satan rebelled. And Satan had nine jewels. Uh, just as Levites have 12 jewels in their vest. It's one of those things that's sort of part of the, the notion of that high priest role. So in Isaiah 14, he's actually known as Hail El. Lucifer is an Italian word inserted into the English language for the Hebrew word Hail El. And notice the E-L on the end. And so... Uh, Lucifer is also the the god of the, uh, of the of the Gnostics and the Freemasons, so uh, I'm not real keen on that translation there. I think they should have translated that as Hallel. But Satan is also described in uh, John 12:31 and 16:11 as the prince of this world, and that is the Hebrew word Archon, and Archon means um, you know, it means like a chief and a leader, uh, as in an angel. And it's the present participle of Arco. Uh, so you have 757, which is Arco, and 758, which is Arcone. What's interesting about Arco, number 757, is that's the prefix to Arc angel, which is the same word. You just have a, have a tense involved on that. So as the prince of the world, he would be the chief angel of this world. And before he would have been the chief angel. So he would have been archangel as well. So I would encourage people to look at Satan as having, we don't know how many different titles and positions he, he would have had, but that describes how far he fell to Satan's status after his rebellion. So um, I think we need to we need to sort of look at all the details about Satan and arrive at a little bit better understanding and not look at things as being sort of contradictory or out of sorts. It's just the Bible adds more information. It doesn't contradict itself. So in this case, I think uh, he's still an archangel as well. I think all of it's true. So um, so just a little bit different take on that, and hopefully that answers uh, Inspired's question. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's always fun to put all of the puzzle pieces together. And I know personally I didn't really start studying the scriptures until I was 19, and I remember 
you know, when you get through your first book of the Bible, you know, you, you have all of these uh, thoughts and you, you think you got some stuff figured out and you get to the next one and it gives more puzzle pieces to that picture, you know, and it makes you reevaluate everything you think. So I really appreciate that you bring in so much information and really uh, challenge us to see how all of those puzzle pieces do fit together and that they, they don't contradict. That's that's right. So thank you so much for that one. We are now to everyone's favorite time, the time where we get into the live questions. So are you ready, Gary? Always. All right. This one <laughs> comes... last words. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, let's see, we have 24 live stream questions. So I'm sure we're not going to get through all of them. And no worries. We will roll these over to next month's pre-made list. This one comes from Victoria Freeman. Please explain the two types of writing inventions that the two Enochs created. I know one created the hieroglyphic, but what writing did the good Enoch create? Was it the original Hebrew? Yeah, it's a good question. So, is and is Hebrew the uh, the the language provided by by God to you know the Sethites? Um, what we do know is Hebrew, from a post-Diluvian perspective or after the flood, is part of the Semitic languages, and so you get the Semitic root um, in places like the Ugaritic text that provides it, and it's vowelless, just as Hebrew was originally vowelless. So. We're getting a language that goes back to um, Shem, uh, son of Noah, and obviously it's a language that is coming across the flood. So there's a possibility that that is uh, the language that you know was part of the Seth line that Enoch would have um, had. Uh, so, but how how that was written can be. A different thing right so and you know in the book of enoch in chapter 83 1 in the longer version the the Giaz version um you have enoch learning to write so uh it would appear from that that he he was learning uh you know a language that was already written um as opposed to inventing the language at least according to that chapter in the book of Enoch. And in the Enoch son of Cain, in, in, the, in the polytheist version, it's Enoch son of Cain who's going to create hieroglyphics for this knowledge that he's developing into the seven sacred sciences that's going to develop into the mystical religions. And that means sacred writings. It's all part of the ritualistic part of the writings and the worship that is going to be done. But that isn't, necessarily the language that Enoch, son of Jared, would have been using. So hieroglyphs, uh, you know, kind of more associated with um, Egyptian writing and by inference, antediluvian Egyptian writing versus uh, the cuneiform that was being used in places like uh, Sumer, uh, places further up into the Greece area and for a little bit further north where they found cuneiform from, you know, before 3000 BC up there. And for the most part, it would I, I would say things sort of tend to point to, and as I make the case in, in my book, that uh, the blackheads out of Sumeria are the more likely place where um, at least the 
Sethites would have been um, more akin to and associated with. Uh, you could make that argument that uh, Enoch, son of uh, Cain, could have been living there, and they went east of Eden and settled in there. But again, the hieroglyphs suggest maybe a different location. So where I'm kind of going with this is I don't think Enoch, son of Jared, invented any writing if Enoch, the book of Enoch is correct, and he would have been using languages that would have been going on for, you know, um, let's say four generations or so, and likely more cuneiform, I think, than the hieroglyphs that he would have been using. That's a really interesting question. Never considered that one. So thank you for providing some clarity on that one. Next question comes from Jamali. What about Christ's promise in Mark 13 that for the elect's sake, when the false Christ returns, the time of the tribulation will be shortened as is stated in Revelation 9, 10, and 11, 2? Yeah, so I think the question is about um, the shortening of, of, of the days. So that all, mm -hmm. if you didn't um, you know, sh shorten those days, then no flesh would survive. So the question by implication is, is well, what's going on there? I mean, we have exact number of days um, and years that are going to make up the last seven years and the last three and a half years. Uh, so is it going to be fewer days or is it a shortening of the length of days? And you have a parallel to that. Uh, Jamali's talking about Mark 13. You get that also in Matthew 24, 22. So, you have two verses that are saying the days are going to be shortened. And that is, as you take that back to Greek, it means abridged or uh, curtailed or shortened. So something's going to abridge to make those days shorter. And the only thing that I can think to keep the, the, the accuracy of the Bible in place so that there would be less days because we get all of these day counts that were provided, is, is that there's going to be something that abridges that. And the only thing that could abridge it to make that accurate would be somehow a shortening of the days. We do know there's going to be a lot of darkness that is going on in, in the last seven years. And, but I think something is going to have to happen to go around the sun or the sun around the earth in a faster manner. Uh, to make that happen. So it's going to be something that is absolutely supernatural to still have a day based on what how a day is defined, which is, you know, evening and daylight. So I think it has to be a quickening to abridge that. But that's just my speculation. That's one of those preternatural things that um, we'll have to wait and see what actually transpires on that. But again, as you know, being the word who created all things at the command of God and is Alpha Maker like God, anything they want to do, they can do because they are omnipotent. And so they could easily cause a shortening. And I don't know how, how that would work sort of gravitationally and everything else, but again, they are omnipotent, so they can they can make that work if they, if that's what they want to do. So, some sort of abridging is going to uh, take place to uh, bring uh, bring this into perfect uh, fulfillment. We're just not exactly sure how they're going to do that. So, but we are told they are going to do it. That's really interesting. 
a concept. So move on to the next question it comes from Enoch Inspired. What do you think about the Antichrist being a Nephilim? As he does act and have unusual powers like a Nephilim would possibly have. And how will his mark corrupt mankind? Yeah, a couple uh good questions there. So I think he's going to be uh, either a descendant of the of, of the bloodlines of the Nephilim and the Rephaim, uh, as I make the case for in my book, um, and we talk I talk about that all the way through. Or you could also make a case that um, Satan, who has not gone to the abyss, uh, is will step in and create a new spurious offspring and as i talked about earlier and i use that word spurious a lot in 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 my book it has a couple of meanings but i'm using it in the case of its understanding as this illegitimate uh offspring outside of a legitimate marriage and legitimate laws as being spurious so i think uh we're going to see a spurious antichrist that's going to take power it's just a matter of how that is is it through um a fallen angelic uh, recreation of a new Nephilim that we talked about also earlier in the show being created uh, as part of the art at the end time? Is it the bloodlines or is there something, some other aspect that we haven't seen yet? I, I think he's related to the beast empires because he, he, he rises amongst the 10 horns. He's called the beast king as well. All the things sort of for me, indicate a bloodline descendant of of a of a Nephilim or a Raphaim, but we'll just have to see how that sort of uh, plays out in the end time. And then the other interesting thing, as we talked about, was son of perdition, and uh, that's part of a series of words that has Apollo and Apollyon and um, a couple other words that are all part of the same type of series of words in the same meaning. So the son of perdition could actually mean, you know, the son of Azazel too, if you, if you took it that way, but he receives the power from Anta, uh, from Satan or the dragon. The dragon's not explained, but as being Satan there, but he is in revelation 12, but the dragon could also be a seraphim angel, which uh, Azazel was at one time. So when you look at receives the power from the dragon, in Revelation 13, you're left with two possibilities, except that, as I said, Satan is, divine, is defined as the dragon in Revelation 12, and also in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Satan provides power to Antichrist. So if there is a bloodline connection to, to Satan, then that means that's going to ha have happened either you know rather recently or maybe a generation or so before, because Satan has not gone to the abyss and he will at the end of the you know last seven years. So that might indicate that he, he starts that bloodline or it could be descendants in the past. We'll just have to sort of wait and see uh, how that plays out. But I do think that there's a connection to, to the spurious offspring of angels. Another really interesting question, and thank you for that answer. Uh, we might have time for one more question. This one comes from Hebrew Hippie. How did the seven churches and their angels tie to an area that they are associated with, and is this the prison of the previously fallen ones, hence all the volcanoes and earthquakes there? Yeah, it's a, it's a 
Interesting question. Um, I think it's a reference to Tartarus that is um, referenced there, and we see that biblically come up once as Tartarus for, for hell in the New Testament. Tartarus is also the pit prison or the abyss prison that polytheism says giants escaped out of after the flood uh, into Asia Minor, um, and then up to uh, you know other places like uh, northern part of Greece into Transylvania and places like that um, is all sort of in, sort of encapsulated into that area of, of what would be thought of the Tartarus uh, for settlements of, of escape in, in polytheism. So that's interesting because the seven churches that the letters go to are also in Asia Minor as well. And I think if 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 uh, the polytheists want to use that for counterfeit, they'll have their own seven churches of the end time that may be sort of branch head offices of the main universal religion, and that they would have be included in what you what they would call the Thelemic tree, which is kind of like the world tree that joins heaven and earth, except that their heaven is in Hades or the underworld, and the roots go down there, and that the power of the hierarchy on the physical world is received through those roots and through that tree and into the branches and various organizations on on the earth. So in that sort of scenario and trying to work sort of quickly in my mind through uh, how that might be connected is, is that they would usurp those seven churches and that they will become that counterfeit seven churches of the end time to help sort of deceive Christians in, in this whole polytheist sort of concept. And I don't find it surprising from that aspect that Jesus would pick seven churches in that area as a sign that he is way more powerful than the fallen angels and he'll put those churches where they say that uh, giants escape to and settled into after the flood i think that's all known by the alpha omega and they did that with intention as a sign to the dark forces all right well that brings us to the end of the show thank you so much for joining brother gary thank you everybody in the live chat we were able to get through quite a few questions and we still have 23 that will roll over to next month's ask me anything so we're looking forward to it and we love you brother gary thank you again for joining and we'll catch you all next time shalom and make sure to check out the genesis 6 conspiracy.com with the number six and you can find that link in the description box below the video thank you for having us revolution radio and we'll see you next time shalom good night Thank <laughs> you.